0: Welcome, everybody, to our third meetup of the week. This is a big week. Next week's a big week, and the week after that, it's even bigger. As usual, my name is Bart Farrell, and I'm lucky enough to be celebrating another Data on Kubernetes meetup. Today was a very special person, and I want to say very special. I mean very special person. We've got an hour. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. As usual, Gordica, can we get the links in the screen? If this is your first time to the Data on Kubernetes community, please remember that we have LinkedIn. Yesterday we broke 1,000 people on LinkedIn. Yes. And now we already have 1,050, so that's going really well. If you're not in our Slack, please get in our Slack. That's where you can connect with wonderful folks like Webb. You'll find out that his company is also hiring. Um, we have job adverts. We have people uh, sharing knowledge, asking questions interacting with each other. So please get our Slack. You can also find out about all the other stuff we have going on, on Twitter. And speaking of stuff that's going on, very special announcement that I've been saying a lot, and I will say again, is that on May 3rd, we'll be participating in KubeCon with a co-located event. Um, so Gorka, can we share a screen really quickly? Um, if you are not registered for KubeCon yet, um, you can you can just jump into the uh, the CNCF website. Big shout out to the CNCF. Um, As you will see, we have the data on Kubernetes Day, hosted by the CNCF, sponsored by our good friends at Datastacks. We've got over, I want to say around 10 talks confirmed so far. Tomorrow we will be finalizing the call for papers. If you have an idea for a submission, um, we've got the links in various places also on our website, or you can just contact me directly in Slack. We'd be happy to get that to you. Um, So we'll be deciding the final talks, uh, end user talks that we're going to be including. Um, But like I said, you have all the info there. If for whatever reason you're not registered for KubeCon and you would still like to attend, we'll find a way to make that work for you. Um, Our event is 100% complimentary. It's totally free. There will be a fundraising component for an NGO called The Last Mile that we've collaborated with before that helps uh, incarcerated and formerly incarcerated folks learn programming to improve chances of social mobility. And once again, knowledge sharing. Um, we've got that on the CNCF website. And then also you can see the schedule that we have so far on our website, dok.community. Um, as I said, we, this is a provisional schedule. There's still maybe some changes. Um, after tomorrow, when we decide on the end-user talks that we're going to be having, uh, having as well as a talk about governance for the data on Kubernetes community, um, as we move forward with our integration with the CNCF and all of that good stuff. Right. Um, so now we're done. Go we can stop sharing the screen. Thank you. Um, that being said, uh, we are speaking to a wonderful person who looks like he is inside a beautiful library. Um, and but there's much more exciting. To web than just that like i said i'm so excited for the first time i'm standing up well, i'm sitting down for these things but we talk a lot about and we were just talking about before we got started we talk about cloud native mentality we talk about kubernetes native mentality what that means um we talk about historically speaking a lot of times we're making references to borg well today we have a person who actually was working in google when kubernetes wasn't kubernetes and it was borg Webb is a founder, a product manager, an investor, an advisor. You do lots of different things, you've worn many hats. Welcome to the Data on Kubernetes Meetup, Web. Who are you?
1: Bart, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Um, huge fan of what you're doing with the community. Love the energy, love the excitement. I'm so proud to be here. Um, I'm going to start with sharing some slides um, and I will do that now. Okay, good. Uh, but first of all, where do you, where do you work? Uh, so I am a co-founder uh, and CEO of KubeCost. All right. Um, so we'll talk about what uh, we do, but so much to cover here today. That's super exciting to us. We're going to be talking about Co- like cost monitoring in cloud native environments, specifically, you know, running Kubernetes, uh, like really large scale data pipelines and Kubernetes deployments. We're going to be talking about open source, uh, open source ourselves, projects like Prometheus, Thanos, all that great stuff.
0: Very, very good. As a reminder to everyone, feel free to ask questions in the chat. Um, Web, you won't be able to see them, but I will. So we can get to them uh, on the go, or we can always continue the conversation in Slack. That's no problem. But anyway, go right into your material, Web.
1: That sounds excellent. Yeah, stop me at any point with questions, Bart, um, and all questions are fair game today. Uh, So anything that's on your mind, happy to talk about. Um, So with that, let's dive right in. Um, So what is KubeCost? KubeCost is a cost management platform built on open source for teams running Kubernetes. Um, We're gonna talk a little bit about it today, but uh, we don't just provide uh, with the KubeCost project visibility into Kubernetes. We also give you visibility into spin outside of Kubernetes as well. So we want you to be able to have a holistic view whenever you're thinking about cost management, cost optimization, et cetera. So how do we do that? Uh, We do that by focusing in three areas. First and foremost, we wanna give you spin visibility. So this is about helping you answer really important things like what am I spending per project, per pod, per team, per department, cost center, whatever is important for your team or your situation where you're running workloads. Um, Once we get this visibility in place, we wanna start thinking about optimization, right? So how do we give you insights or dynamic actions to where you can right size your infrastructure, optimize your infrastructure, to where you're achieving this uh, Nirvana or, or perfect balance of cost, reliability, performance, et cetera. And then we don't want this to just be a one-time set of optimizations, right? We wanna think about managing efficient infrastructure over time. So that's where this governance piece comes in. Um, there's a lot that the Cost project offers today with um, you know, recurring save reports, maybe it's implementing like a showback or chargeback program, maybe it's, um, you know, budgeting or alerting or anomaly detection, a bunch of different tools um, available uh, kind of for different use cases. Um, and we can talk about some of those today. So that's a really quick kind of overview of, of the kind of different parts for a, a holistic like cost management solution. Um, I think one thing to point out is like, It's common that we see people kind of get stuck in in two modes uh, when running Kubernetes, and especially running Kubernetes at scale. Uh, Part one is just kind of not having that visibility in place, right? Like oftentimes when we first start talking to teams, they're largely flying blind in the sense of they can't answer, say, what is the cost of this application or this project, this namespace, or even these clusters, for example. Um, We really, really focus on that as kind of part one is, Get that basic visibility, that basic transparency, uh, allocation, accountability in place um, before we kind of move forward to like optimization. And then once you get that visibility in place, oftentimes it's pretty straightforward to start thinking about right-sizing whether it's infrastructure workloads, you know, scaling dynamically, you know, putting those in place. Oftentimes there can be you know technical complexity depending on the situation, but this is actually pretty straightforward for a lot of situations. Um, It's really kind of problem area two, which is doing this on an ongoing basis, right? So, um, you know, if you have your infrastructure perfectly dialed in one day, how do you make sure it maintains that state? So you're not uh, showing up, you know, once a month or once a quarter realizing that you're overspending by 30, 50 plus percent. Um, So those are kind of two of the most common kind of patterns that we see for, for teams in a lot of different environments. Um, so quick background on us. Um, we launched a project, the Open Source Project, in early 2019. Um, before that, uh, our, my other co-founder and our CPO were both at Google. Um, Bart mentioned we were working on uh, monitoring projects across a number of different like platforms um, like Borg or internal infrastructure at Google. Um, before you know Kubernetes days, uh, then uh, like Google Cloud as well as like external Dev tools. Um, so it's it's been amazing to uh, to see the the like evolution of this uh, you know community and technology um, going back to you know you know pre Kubernetes experience at Google. Um, One thing Bart and I talked about a little bit was kind of my early exposure uh, to the platform. Um, And we can, we can talk a little bit more about that, but um, it was like early 2015 where one of my teammates uh, joined this uh, really interesting project called Kubernetes. Um, She was, I believe she was the second uh, PM on on the team. She was actually my first manager Um, and I remember, I will never forget the like first lunch that we had um, where she was either about to join the team or she just joined the team. And she kind of said, you know, mark my words, uh, this was gonna be big. Um, Like the Kubernetes platform is going to be huge. Um, And I remember that that was a turning point for me um, in terms of like seeing the potential. And I I have to be honest that I did not realize that it would be this uh, like explosive and this, Pervasive uh, that we
0: that we would reason. be that we would be talking to each other today.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but I do have to credit uh, Aparna Sinha for for allowing us to be talking today on my side. Um, I think up until that kind of conversation, I kind of thought about it was that you know we were going to kind of be open sourcing Borg, externalizing the power. And also, kind of the complexity that was Bork, um, and I kind of thought at the time that, wow, that sounds really cool. Um, you know, maybe there's a thousand companies out there that that would be a fit for. Um, I was I was wrong, and Aparna helped me helped me realize that that yeah, you know, millions and millions of developers would be interacting with this. Um, so incredible, incredible to see. Um, when when we talk about KubeCost, we're actually monitoring a lot of you know, Kubernetes environments of all shapes and sizes um, across many different platforms. Um, so like more than a thousand active deployments today. Um, a lot of these are at AWS Azure GCP, um, but we actually have a lot of users running on-prem. You can even run Kube costs in air-gapped environments, um, a growing number of users doing that. Um, and then really this long tail of, of other you know, cloud providers um, see a lot of deployments there as well too, um, so you know tons and tons of different uh, environments where Kubecost is deployed today. So, with that, let's talk about you know how this is used. Like, you know, what what in the world is Kubecost? What does it do? Uh, and we're going to start first with kind of this visibility piece, right? And when Kubecost thinks about cost visibility or spend visibility, we think about three different areas. We think about in cluster cost we think about external cost and we think about shared cost, And in this case, we show those kind of all rolling up to a set of namespaces, and then this project Calypso, which is like a collection of namespaces. Um, so when we just talk about where do we collect or where do we ingest data on, within a cluster, and all of this data resides lives in a cluster um, we'd be looking at you know a number of in cluster data sources so leveraging c advisor leveraging the linux kernel um, node exporter um, you know a, a no, like a, a number of other different uh, like the kubernetes api directly all of these data sources coming together to build these models to say here's the cost of a container a pod a deployment, a stateful set, et cetera. And then once we have those basic building blocks in place, again, going all the way down to the container level, we can do any aggregation of interesting collections of workloads. Again, whether that's by namespace, by project or anything else. So that's kind of the end cluster piece. And again, this is, you know, memory, compute, network, GPU, storage, et cetera. But it's really important to not just think about, cost within a cluster is kind of isolated from the rest of your infrastructure spin, right? So there we would actually integrate and ingest data from um, your cloud like provider or or your cloud billing data set. Um, So there you can see this holistic view of, every staple set or pod or anything that is using external resources whether that be, you know, a load balancer or a, um, you know, big query, like, you know, data table, uh, uh, S3 bucket, RDS instance, you name it, this would allow you to kind of holistically see the cost of running a tenant or the cost of running an application. So then part three is it's really common to have shared resources, right? That could be a monitoring namespace within your cluster um, it could be sometimes even like we'll see teams add their own like infrastructure engineering team's time as a, a shared cost that they want to distribute across tenants. Uh, so KubeCost has a number of different ways of doing that. You can split costs evenly, proportionately, et cetera. Uh, but then this is really, again, about kind of getting a, a balanced and fair perspective of like cost visibility or, or spend over your environments. Um So that's, you know, really like talking about all these different data sources. KubeCost would pull them all together and again, present to you a a holistic picture of spend, not just in your cluster, but, you know, outside of your cluster as well with these external costs. So with that, I was planning on jumping into a demo Um, and let me know if there's questions while I spin this up. Uh, but if I, not,
0: I do, I mean, just in terms of context, you know, because we have had conversation with, uh, with Sergio from, from Red Hat of, I mean, obviously looking specifically at OpenShift, but we've had conversation with other folks as well too about, you know, cloud costs in general, but also with Kubernetes. Um, is it, you know, it's, it's something that, that's come up multiple times. Like is, are we talking about questions of governance, responsibility, um, what things should be, you know, inside from the get go? But these costs that we're talking about, exactly how much money, you know, are, what, what kind of numbers are, are you seeing?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, when, when you talk about just deployment size, you know, we have users of KubeCost that are spending, you know, hundreds a month or maybe thousands a month up to like tens of millions of dollars a month. Um, so a huge range, obviously, like as that number grows, uh, tens teams tend to care more and more. Um, What we have seen is like, once you're spending like a hundred grand a month, um, it's typically like worthwhile to make an investment here. Cause now you're starting to talk about multiple headcount in, in savings commonly. Um, And I would just say, you know, back in the envelope uh, it is uh, very common where teams are able to reduce spend by, greater than 30 percent, oftentimes greater than 50 percent when they start really reviewing costs closely. Um, So as that number grows, you know, you can think about it as like the the opportunity cost or the cost of kind of not taking action tends to grow as well. Um, We we tend to see, again, kind of around that 100K mark, teams take this very, very seriously. Um, But we've also seen tons of uh, like, I, I think, kind of sadly at this point, war stories where, you know, your, your regular, uh, like, you know, cloud bill is relatively small, but you spin up a really large GPU training cluster and you accidentally leave it running all weekend. And it's a very expensive mistake, right? Like, you, you accidentally spend like 50 times your average cloud bill in a weekend, kind of thing. Um, so definitely varies, but in general, um, you know, that, that's kind of the mark where we see teams taking this really, really seriously.
0: All right. Perfect.
1: Um, cool. And let me know if there's any others, but if not, I will dive into this. No, demo. you just, you
0: just have a fan who said a comment that KubeCost is great. <laughs> so oh,
1: thank you very much. Thank oh, nice you. shot. Oh yeah.
0: That is from Sergio from, from, I was talking to, he was on here from Trip. So anyway, thank you, Sergio. Very nice of you.
1: Thank, yeah, thank you so much. Um, it, mean, it means a lot. That's, that's why we do this. I really appreciate the feedback. Um, so, like, we're, we're taking a look at a KubeCost cost deployment right now. It's a small, like, staging environment that we have set up. Um, and what we see right away is we have got data for multiple clusters, right? So, super common that teams want to see kind of all of their environments, all their clusters, totally unified. Um, you can see all of those different pieces we talked about. So, in cluster spend, CPU, GPU, you know, memory, et cetera, shared cost, external cost. Um, and so, one thing is there, there's kind of two really common kind of questions that come up when you first see this view. So, first is okay, why in the world am I spending this much money um, or why are costs trending this way? And then also why in the world is my spend efficiency so low, right? So uh, we've built a a UI to where it's really easy to go and answer those things. You truly just click once and we dive into the namespace level. So right away we can see, okay, these are the actual cost drivers From a namespace perspective, we can see efficiency by namespace, et cetera. Um, So from here, we can just keep going. We can dive into the namespace. Here we see every single workload running in this namespace. So deployments, daemon sets, jobs, if there's individual pods, we'd see those running, et cetera, et cetera. Um, From there, we can still keep going. And we can see the individual pods that we're running in this particular deployment. Um, and again, here we're, we're watching efficiency as we go to be able to understand again, what, what workload is actually driving or maybe even skewing uh, our, our efficiency. And so from here, we can go the final step and look at these, uh, all the way, these costs all the way down to the container level. I think here it's helpful to to kind of talk about how this is calculated. Because again, everything that we just showed you, all this cost allocation is built from this most granular level. Um, And the first piece of this is talking to the Kubernetes API to determine the amount of time that this particular workload was running, right? So when was it actually scheduled? When was it actually consuming resources? Secondly is Given the the particular resource we're looking at, in this case, you know CPU right here, how many or how many units of that resource on average over this particular time window? We're looking at seven days right here. How many resources was this uh, workload consuming? Um, here we'd be looking at the max of usage and request. Um, so if you if it's a best efforts pod and there's no requests on the workload, we'd be looking at usage. If there's a really high request and you're using very little of it, well, the scheduler is still reserving those resources for you. So we, we strongly recommend allocating or, or billing the request there. And then, you know, this number, which is really important, is like what is the cost of this unit, right? Whether it's a CP hour, a GB hour of storage, RAM, et cetera. Um, there, there are two potential sources for this, actually. Uh, When you just deploy KubeCosts, you can literally just helm install it. You don't have to integrate it with your environment. Again, all data lives on your environment, so you don't have to share any data. But we would be pulling from one of two sources when you first deploy it. Um, If you're on AWS, GCP, or Azure, we have integrations with their billing APIs. So we would show you the cost of the CPU on that in one standard. Or whatever node you're running on. Um, oh,
0: sorry. One, one quick question from Sariet. Um, efficiency field: the higher, the better.
1: Uh, d- depends. Actually. Um, okay. So in in, in general, um, if you have really stable usage requirements um, and you can predict uh, efficiency really well, um, you you de- definitely want to like aim towards higher. Um, if you have highly variable and or very hard to predict uh, workload requirements, you really wanna think about this balance between, again, kind of performance and cost, right? So if we're just, because we're talking about CPU, if we just use that example, in this case, you know, we've requested uh, 200 milli CPUs. So there, um, if if we set that number too high, uh, we're obviously gonna be a low efficiency and we're gonna be overspending. But if we set that number too low, and we do have a spike in utilization or a spike in you know, CPU demand by this workload, uh, we're at risk of being CPU throttled. Um, and that obviously has you know latency, reliability concerns. Um, so it really depends on the nature of the workload in terms of the predictability of uh, like resource needs, and then also the impact of these kind of negative events, whether it's uh, being throttled or out of memory evicted, et cetera. Um, so uh, if you look at KubeCost, when we actually give you recommendations or insights to, um, you know, set these like requests or, or limits, we'd actually uh, be letting you set a quote profile. And there it's like, you know, if this is an HA environment uh, where throttling is a big concern, right? You want to set this number higher, you want to like give additional headroom. On the other end of the spectrum, if this is a dev environment where hey, it's not the end of the world if things get throttled, um, you can you know tighten headroom and, and look to push that efficiency number really high. Um, just to give some, we commonly get this question. Just some back of the envelope um, numbers that we commonly see. Um, you know, sixty five percent utilization from CPU uh, perspective is really common just um, across many different workloads. Um, If you have either like batch workloads or really stable resource requirements, we see that number, you know, up into the 90s sometimes. Um, Most of the time it's, you know, 60s to to 80s, just to give some back of the envelope. But again, context does matter there.
0: Okay. Regarding, uh, sorry, another question. Um, How do you make the integration with Azure APIs to get the cost using a service principal name or something like that?
1: Yeah, so, um, so two things here. Um, one is we would just ship with a, a key. So it, it kind of just works out of the box, right? So we would integrate with public billing APIs based on the key that we uh, we ship by default. But then if you wanted, say, let's say you have a, a special discount, an enterprise discount, or you're using spot nodes and we want to reflect the price of your infrastructure, that's where then you would integrate with your particular cloud provider uh, like billing data set uh, and a number of different ways to do that. You could use a cloud formation template. Um, you can you know, provision it yourself and just give like a, on Azure a subscription ID, et cetera, into KubeCost. Um, we'd have like like docs.kubecost would have all that available, um, but but a number of different ways to do that integration. It's totally optional, but what what it does is take you from general pricing offered by the cloud providers to your specific pricing Um, and what we do is we are real-time reading this data from the kubernetes api Um, and then as soon as your cloud providers uh, billing data set is available would actually reconcile to what you're actually charged so we can get it allows you to have the best of both worlds we get you kind of real time oftentimes within a minute but very near real time data from the Kubernetes API. And then we get you that like high grain precision accuracy as soon as your cloud provider uh, billing data set is available.
0: Okay, we, sorry, we got we had one more question as well. Awesome. Um, yeah, the getting these you're getting people really excited. Oh. People want to save money. Um, I love it. So another question from Sardi. Thank you, Sardi. We're going to have to get you a t-shirt. Um, also in terms of on-prem deployment, how does KubeCost determine the cost of workloads?
1: Great crescent, great crescent. So that's um, this, you know, area number two. Um, you can think about even like um, DigitalOcean or Alibaba, uh, mm-hmm. we would actually perform similar to on-prem today. Um, and the answer, once again, is twofold. Um, we, in the, like, the, but the holistic answer is like custom pricing sheets. Um, but by default, we give you some assumptions um, which are based on public cloud provider building data sets and we would just say, here is an estimated uh, cost per CPU hour, cost per memory hour, cost per you know, RAM hour, whatever dimension you're looking at. Um, so from there, we actually have a more advanced like custom pricing sheet pipeline, where you can actually come in and, and kind of override those simple estimates and just say for every single asset in your environment, here is the cost of operating that asset. Um, and you provide this on an hourly or, or monthly basis. And then based on that, our, like cost itself would determine the cost of each individual you know, resource on that particular asset. Um, that's the like more advanced way of, again, kind of a fully customizable, you know, down to every single machine, uh, if you like to kind of set heterogeneous prices for, for different boxes that you have. Um, I would say that most teams are comfortable starting with just kind of the basic, you know, configuring a CPU hour, et cetera, and then typically progress to that more advanced pipeline. If they really want to dial in like a chargeback program or a showback program, um, we're kind of getting down to, you know, the last penny is really important.
0: Okay. And now that we've jumped from DigitalOcean, Alibaba, we've done on-prem, an AWS question, um, also from Sergio. How do you split memory and CPU from AWS costs? Mm -hmm. Into, yeah. into their own cost. So both double when you use a higher size instance.
1: Totally. Um, and this applies to other environments as well. Um, what we did was we basically did some analysis as essentially like a linear algebra problem where we basically said across family types, on average, here is the marginal or incremental cost of a CPU. Uh, and here's the marginal or incremental cost of you know, a RAM hour. Um, and then we hold that ratio constant. So if on average we say that um, you know one CPU costs 5x uh, one you know GB of RAM, then that ratio would be held constant across any like you know instance family or any family uh, that you provision a, a, a node in. Um, that's fully configurable. We have a lot of teams that set kind of their own internal, kind of economy for prices and just, you know, some teams that even say like, we want to shift all of our costs to, to CPU, for example. And, you know, RAM is essentially free because we're you know only really ever bottlenecked on CPU. Um, so that would be able to, you know, be done just by a values.yaml, you know, configuration change in, in our home chart. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of high level analysis that's done. Again, you can override it and happy to share more there. Um, if you, you want to get no, no, but, into but more i think of the it's detail. i
0: think it's i think it's good i think it's really interesting to hear your explanations of all this because uh, you know in in a way you've really kind of got to be a, a we can say a jack of all trades regarding you know each cloud provider has its own ins and outs intricacies integration, things you have to keep in mind. So when you're, and, you know, with the full spectrum of different, you know, customers you're interacting with, um, you really kind of got to do a lot of homework, I guess, regarding the the differences between each one. Um, anyway, good. Thanks everyone for the questions. Let's keep moving.
1: Yeah. Um, just, just to finalize that point, we do think it's super valuable to have that common language across, right? We have more and more teams that are in multi-cloud, hybrid cloud environments. Um, so to have a unified language where you think about, you know, cost allocation across everything um, is, is super important. Um, but that, that you know, like through those questions, I, I think like really got into this number and beyond. Um, that's like all I wanted to say in this particular demo. Um, so yeah, we will jump back to, to slides if that sounds good. Um, Excellent. Sweet. Good. Um, so let's talk about, uh, we're, we're collecting in, in large environments, especially we're collecting just tons of data, right? Um, you know, just C-Advisor alone, uh, you know, typically most teams are scraping it every minute. So you're, co- you know, sampling usage metrics every minute. If you have, you know, thousands of, of workloads, lot, like it is a lot of data, right? Um, if we go down to this low level, um, we integrate tightly with, a number of PromQL, and by we I mean KubeCost project. Um, th- like this could be a Prometheus, a Thanos, a Cortex, M3, um, I- any like kind of PromQL endpoint is essentially supported. So the way this uh, like uh, underlying time series database would work is it is both a source and a sync for KubeCost. So it is ingesting things like um, you know advisor metrics. And then also it is uh, like we are writing back, you know, Linux kernel metrics, these allocation metrics, these cost metrics, et cetera. Um, so Prometheus and other PromQL solutions work incredibly well for this. Um, once you start getting to scale though, and you want to do like really, uh, you know, long window lookbacks, or you want to do this at just big scale in general, um, we we like you know see that doing that with Prometheus directly, or especially something like Thanos that would access remote storage, that can just be really, really expensive. Right. So we have invested a ton of time and effort to build this layer, this like caching layer, or this layer of ETL pipelines, so that when we were showing those demos and we're doing seven-day lookbacks, or we're doing 30 or 90-day look backs we're only actually querying this ETL pipeline. We always, with our APIs, reserve the ability to go to the underlying time series database. But at scale, that can be just really expensive, right? You're pulling in a lot of you know, TSDB blocks, you're you know, sending a lot of data over the wire. Um, so that's why we just kind of build this once in really small chunks. And then we let you query this going back, whether it's 90 days, 120 days, et cetera. And that's again, fully configurable. Um, so that that same like touch point, whether it's the ETL pipeline or the backing time series database, that would be applied to the KubeCost UI, which we just showed that also be applied to the underlying APIs um, that, that, that UI is using. Everything that uh, the UI interacts with is like a restful Uh, like JSON set of APIs. And they're actually uh, super excited. Just launched another open source project yesterday. um, And it is kubectl cost, where basically you can see, you know, an interface with those same APIs from kubectl. So you can see, you know, spin by namespace, spin by, you know, workload, uh, spin efficiency, et cetera, all from the kind of comfort of uh, kubectl. So... That's just you know one thing that's like really important from accessing this data. Um, that when you get to scale, you, you kind of you don't want to be querying, you know Prometheus or Thanos directly, um, and I think also kind of highlights our philosophy um, of like bringing this data where you are, whether it's Googlesytel or Grafana or any other place. Um, you know, using our APIs, piping it to something like Looker, for example. We have teams taking our data and taking it many different places. And we think that's just like so important to creating awareness across you know, engineering teams, and, but also just teams in general. So that's like a super important philosophy that we have uh, with our product and you know, across our team. Um, so, you know, we, we, just to talk a little bit about storage, everything we've been sa- showing so far um, in that demo, and also kind of like just speaking generically That's all been like living off of a Prometheus deployment with just a backing PV. Um, Once teams uh, either get to some complexity or really start depending on cost data, again, because they're doing like a chargeback program where they're actively billing their teams or departments on this, they oftentimes really want to think about um, like, you know, guaranteeing that storage. And oftentimes it's outside of the cluster. And I think it's really interesting and important and it's a little bit different than we originally thought um, when we first built the product um, is that a lot of teams want this data set to, yeah, res- reside totally independent of an individual cluster or even a set of clusters. And I think this is important for um, teams thinking about costs is because you truly want to have this holistic picture you know, if you're running 75 different clusters, you wanna be able to see them all in one data set and understand relative cost, cost trends across all of them. And oftentimes the best way to do that is by having, again, uh, like storage totally outside the cluster so that you don't have to worry about cluster to cluster communication or you know security posture across all of them, et cetera. Um, and one of the most common ways we see this done is with Thanos. And this architecture kind of gives a high level presentation of that Thanos deployment. Um, Thanos uh, deployment with a sidecar has this really cool property where it just sits alongside Prometheus um, and basically just writes data to a backing storage bucket. And then on a master deployment, um, you can you know, query that underlying storage bucket and have a unified cost. A picture of your costs, excuse me. Um, and so, what that does is, again, it gets you that holistic view, but it doesn't require you to kind of hook up, you know, connections across clusters um, or think about, you know, different providers talking to each other or different regions, et cetera. You know, in this scenario, you can have data from an AWS cluster, an Azure cluster, and a GCP cluster, all in you know different parts of the world, writing to a single storage bucket. And it kind of just works without a lot of configuration. Um, so that's you know just general when we see teams get to like large complexity or really depending on this data, uh, that's oftentimes the the like deployment mechanism that we see. And then we talk a little bit about data ownership, which is super important to us. Um, we believe deeply that every team should have the ability to like own and control all their data. Um, When it comes to cost data, spin metrics, um, this is from our perspective, you know, super sensitive information and we want to give teams the right to own this. And the way we think we do that is one by, you know being rooted in open source and allowing teams to audit our code, um, you know, fully open uh, our code's license under Apache 2. You can modify it if you want to. You know, you can take this and deploy it as you would like. Um, and then secondly is, and you'll see it in that, um, like open source code, is that there's no data egress to Cross, uh servers. Um, you can lock down egress in whatever namespace you deploy, KubeCost, et cetera. And then again, letting teams set their own data retention and access control model. Um, so with anything like Prometheus or Thanos, you can configure... Um, you know, retention or even, you know, down sampling uh, in, in like a Thanos environment, but then you can also limit access to that, right? So um, whether it's integrated with like, uh, you know, RBAC or a SAML solution, like an Okta or something like that, we want to allow teams to be able to control this on their own. Um, and again, you know, if they just want to have say like a single team or a set of small set of teams have visibility, then they can do that. They can even lock that down by like, you know, a, a namespace level granularity, for example, if you only want teams uh, to see their only, you know, their namespaces, for example. Um, so this is super important to us uh, that we enable that for teams of, of all shapes and sizes. And we've, we've got a, a lot of users where that's like critical to them as well, whether it's in a government environment or like a, you know, a sensitive environment, like a finance institution or healthcare, that sort of thing. Um, so it's something we think a lot about.
0: Can I, can I ask one really, sh- okay, well, now we get to questions. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, you,
1: you can ask any question <laughs> I, your heart desires.
0: All right, all right. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> no, just because you mentioned data ownership, you know, I am fascinated by all the stuff that's going on right now related to data mesh. And I don't know, have you interacted much with data? I mean, just specifically from the point um, related to data ownership of knowing, all right, uh, we're not going to walk in and find everything all tangled up, legacy code, et cetera, et cetera, particularly in large organizations, financial organizations, healthcare organizations, sensitive records, sensitive data, things like that, knowing exactly who's got access to what um, has, I'm just, what are your thoughts on data mesh? Do you have thoughts on data mesh? If you don't, we can talk about something else. Just curious though.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm unfortunately not an expert on data mesh. Um, Would love to like, you know, talk about specific acts, like aspects of it if you um, are interested, but, I do think that the same kind of entangling of data um, plays out with what we do. And one decision that we see teams make or kind of wrestle with or grapple with kind of early on is like, you know, tons of teams are running Prometheus, as we all know. Um, And, you know, they may have tons of metrics in there, they're even their own custom metrics, um, but a lot of different, you know, exporters like pumping data to, to that. Prometheus, and then we come along and say that we've optimized a Prometheus deployment just for cost metrics, right? So, like, we collect uh, when you look at like the Prometheus operator, we we collect somewhere in the order of magnitude of like five to ten percent. So, like, you know, ninety plus percent less. Um, and so, teams oftentimes had this question of. Should I leverage what I'm doing with my existing Prometheus and just, you know, send COOP cost metrics there, or should I keep this in like a silo kind of data warehouse, but really, you know, backing, uh, you know, Prometheus uh, set of TSDB blocks? Um, and we think it's like, again, context really matters there. We like to just be open and present the the tradeoffs, right? And our perspective is if you do want to really tightly control access to this uh, to the spend data is like actually putting in its own environment is the best way to ensure that. Um, whereas, you know, once you start putting this in like a, you know, unified set of, uh, TSDB blocks, it's kind of, um, it's easy for teams to get access unintentionally even. Um, Mm -hmm. so that, that's the kind of,
0: but like you said, is that if if people are just you know tripping and falling into this into this kind of this is where the question has to be asked, whether it's a data lake or a data warehouse, however it's being set up, who, who's controlling what, who's responsible for what. And I also think that's that's something that's come up, you know, with uh, with Kubernetes and but also with, with cost control or cost optimization things in general is having things tracked, having things labeled, knowing who's in charge of what. It's not it's not so that there's any finger pointing, it's just so that if these things come up, that there's visibility and transparency on, on what's going on there. Um, yeah.
1: Totally. We yeah, we think that's super important. When, and, and you know, there's a bunch of different implementations of that, whether it's Namespaces or having like a CI CD pipeline, you know, determine an owner or, you know, Kubernetes labels, et cetera. Um, yeah, just that, that ownership um, piece oftentimes drives a lot of good behaviors from our perspective. And again, just like you said, it's not, you know, finger pointing, um, but it's, you know, just knowing kind of where to go if, you know, there's a noisy neighbor. Or you know something is crash looping and you know firing off all alerts. Um, like there, just you know, especially when you get to a large scale engineering team with like you know hundreds or you know hundred plus engineers. Our perspective is that it just uh, it helps on a lot of different fronts: um, cost, you know, performance, even security, to be able to like track down um, issues really quickly.
0: No, I think it's I think it's a really good point. And I think these are things as well, too, that from, you know, we had uh, we had Jim Beguadia from Caverno talking about or sorry, from Nirmada talking about Caverno. And a lot of these things, you know, it's it's not that you have to have uh, a paranoia or, you know, being obsessed with this kind of stuff, but that you really need to have these things as as present as possible from, from an early stage. And not only yeah. when there's a, it seems that frequently with cost optimization, that it's like, we're only going to tackle this when there's, there's already a problem. Like you said, if you're already looking at budgets that are going over hundred K, you probably want to be considering this to, to be, you know, more in the beginning, than oh, we're going to let it get out of control. Another thing as well too, that actually came up in the conversation with Sergio, I'm glad he's here, is that for, you know, cost optimization use cases, just from my very limited research, a lot of times companies don't want to openly go out there and say, yeah, we were burning our investors cash, uh, you know, ruthlessly and irresponsibly. So sometimes perhaps there's not as much visibility about these use cases or, or success stories as as there, there may be in terms of the quantity of cases that are actually happening. Um, in your particular case, in terms of the stakeholders who you interact with the most, are they finance people? Are they DevOps people? Are they uh, engineering managers? Are they... Uh, junior developer. Who, who do you interact with the most? When does, totally. it, when does it? When is it? All right, we got to call Web. We got to get KubeCost on board. How does that go down?
1: Yeah. Um, w- I think first and foremost, <clears throat> we we totally agree with you that like once you once the like fire is already there, once you realize that you're overspending, like some damage has already been done. Whereas if you kind of put these guardrails in place first you oftentimes, again, you can save you know, 30, 50, sometimes, you know, more than 50%. Um, but we also realize that, like, um, you know, we, we have lots of, you know, requirements and lots of things where lots of priorities, and, and that doesn't always happen, right? So, we do see a lot of teams that they're spinning up a new, like, Kubernetes platform in their environment, and they know they want to get these guardrails in place first, because they've heard the, like, you know horror stories or war stories of other teams accidentally overspending but we we get that like that's not always reality right sometimes it it does take a little bit of pain or, or like a you know an, a little overspending to realize that hey we really need to you know do something and get better here um we like when we and i think there's a Uh, like a real self-selection like bias here, but like when we build products, we like to build products for the the team members or the teams that are going to be taking action. Right. So the ones that are actually going to go in right size infrastructure or turn down idle pods or like, you know, unprovision like abandoned resources. Um, all of these things are actually going to drive spend reductions. Uh, and we have this, you know, philosophy or, or strong belief where if we build products well for those taking action, then we get a bunch of really nice byproducts, which are like great reporting for finance and management and great, like easy to implement and easy to understand chargeback programs, all these things. Um, So I think because of that uh, focus of ours, we oftentimes start with the the team or the like DevOps team, infrastructure engineering team, that's like managing the infrastructure or managing Mm -hmm. the clusters. and, you know, they can just helm install our product and get visibility, you know, within a couple of minutes. Um, but we very quickly go to like other parts of the organization from there, right? they share that with management. That's it. That's what they I'm saying. That is retirement. that
0: and, and this is also why, you know, that uh, in some ways to alleviate or take a weight off the shoulders of the infra team, of the engineering teams is that, no, this is a company-wide thing. You know, there are going to yeah, be more, totally. more than a couple of folks that are going to be affected in the same way we we're talking about data responsibility, ownership, governance, etc. cetera. One thing just, uh, we've got, we got two questions. Um, you mentioned chargeback. Can you, someone asked me earlier, can you go over the difference between uh, a showback and a chargeback?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there, there can be nuances here, but a showback would just be when you're taking allocation uh, and actually presenting it to teams or departments across the organization, right? So you would say, "Hey, Team X, you know, you're spending five thousand dollars a month. Here's how it's trending. Uh, it's really just about creating transparency, right, and, and awareness across the organization. Then you move into like a chargeback program." And you're truly here like creating an internal economy or an internal like accounting system where you're actually billing those other teams, right? So this could actually be tied into their PL and potentially their you know bonuses and your performance ratings and all those things, right? So like um, that's a much more like um, Sometimes involved, but like you know, serious effort again, where it's actually tying in with like an internal finance system or metering system, et cetera.
0: Okay, good. Next question. Um, well, it's a comment first. Amazing session, Web. Um, and can we cre- can we create a custom graph where I can select a bunch of different namespaces or pods and or pods, and it provides a consolidated cost?
1: Yeah. So um, there'd be a number of ways to do this. Um, In our product in particular, so like in the UI I just showed you, um, you could do something like grouping by label. Um, So you can, you know, label things at the workload level or the namespace level and then have an aggregation of, you know, any set of labels, you know, you can filter by label, et cetera. Um, But then... We, we do have a lot of teams running our product alongside a Grafana. Um, and like with a Grafana, you could do you know, anything that you desire, right? Within the like confines of any Grafana chart data source that's available. Um, so I would say from our perspective, the like the controls and the customization in our product typically meets, we aim to meet the like 80 to 90% use cases, use case. But then there's always going to be some other customizations that are like better suited and kind of a full service, you know, dashboarding solution like Grafana. Um, We love Grafana. We don't plan on kind of, you know, uh, trying to rebuild that kind of full set of, um, you know, drag and drop, you know, fully uh, customizable dashboarding solution. Um, happy to share more if you have a specific use case, um, but that I think is like the most common patterns that we see is that most things can be met in you know, our UI, but again, lots of customizing uh, available in Grafana.
0: Okay. Um, in terms of in terms of next steps that you see for KubeCost, apart from the fact that you're hiring, um, what's on your roadmap for you? Know, I mean, you mentioned the important news that came out recently, but what else is on the roadmap for uh, for KubeCost in, in the coming six months, let's say?
1: Yeah, um, lots of things. Um, so you just saw we launched uh, Tail costs yesterday, um, gonna be releasing more open source uh, projects. Um, And you can think about that as both kind of on the visibility side, but also on the like optimization side. Um, We're going to be, we're looking at integrating with more providers Um, right now. I mentioned we're AWS, Azure, GCP, going to be looking at doing some additional billing integrations. Um, We, you know, we are doing a bunch of things to continue to provide like faster and faster, like response times at really, really large scale. I'm talking about environments where you have like millions or a million plus um, pods running. Um, We plan to invest a lot more in governance as well. So um, kind of the most commonly used government, governance solutions today are this notion of like recurring reports, which could be used in a showback or chargeback program, Um, our alerts, We are like setting team budgets, et cetera. We just released another feature, which is anomaly detection, uh, which is basically detecting when spend is not consistent with like historical uh, trends, patterns, et cetera. Um, Plan to invest heavily there in just better kind of real time alerting. Um, So lots to come. Uh, Let us know if you have specific like roadmap questions. Uh, we love we love talking about kind of feature requests and new requirements.
0: Okay, we've got a question right here. Does KubeCost um, expose its own APIs to mine the cost data?
1: To, um, yeah, let me, so we, we, everything we've showed you, all of our um, like data is exposed via APIs. Like our UI just uses our underlying like RESTful JSON APIs. So absolutely, um, that is, uh, both, like um, from a like visibility perspective, you know, just seeing spend by any kind of uh, aggregation, also efficiency. Um, then we have these like savings APIs um, where you can both kind of like ingest that to you know pipe it to another tool. But we also have teams actually taking action on say like you know our recommendations for requests or limits or you know cluster right sizing. Um, so yes, let me know if you have a specific use case in mind. But um, the way we build our products is that like anything we built on the front end, we want it to use a publicly available um, API.
0: Okay, good. Um, all righty. I have a question. Okay, this is more of the you know historically speaking. right? because this has come actually, like, this has come up more than, more than a couple of times in in our meetups is that um particularly because you know our communities date on kubernetes so we we talk a lot about you know storage uh, stateful sets uh, running stateful workloads databases etc on kubernetes and one of the things that's mentioned is that in the initial phases and this is where i'm really curious to get uh, your feedback on it um as much as you were privy to whatever the situation was that kubernetes and i would imagine by extension borg well, were not designed with with this with statefulness in mind um in, in when you were working in Google, working on Borg in the early days of Kubernetes, what was the situation? Do you recall any? I feel like a lawyer. Do you recall any conversations that you may or may not have had? Um, but what was the deal? Or in your experience, did that kind of come up? Does it feel like we're kind of shoehorning the data question in? It does feel like, you know, this is now meetup number 42 or 43. We've had, we are finding more and more folks talking about, like I said, running stateful applications, workloads, databases, et cetera. Um, But in your experience, when you were at Google, were there conversations that you remember about that particular topic?
1: Um, This is an area where I can't consider, like, call myself a a true expert. Um, I think it's safe to say that I, 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 like, wasn't, quote, in the room, um, where, you know, that, that was happening in the very early days, uh, by any means. Um, I, I, I can tell you my view on it, um, which there's, you know, some, some assumptions on mine and, and also kind of some speculation. So I definitely def- defer to a, like to Joe Beta on this, um, you know, in that like very early, I kind of thought, um, uh, my perspective is that, uh, there, there was a little bit more attention given to you know workloads that were less dependent on data storage. Um, we also see more and more attractive solutions for doing you know that in, in like a bunch of different um, environments, whether again, it's in cluster or out of cluster storage. Yep. Um, but I, I also think it was, you know my perspective is they did a really good job of just saying, let's build the underlying abstractions or modules and let's build them as like, you know, independent subsystems. And at any point, if you want to layer storage on, you know, you're going to have n number of paths to like layer storage. Um, so I think there wasn't any like uh you know, any intent to say, let's like neglect, you know, staple workloads by any means, but it was more like a let's build the, you know, the platform and the, in the, like underlying modules and allow you to plug yeah. in and, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, yeah, and- exactly.
0: And that was the idea, knowing fully well that this is going to evolve, they're going to be, you know, add ons, additions, you know, releases, all that. And now when you look at, over you know the uh you know how many i don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people have participated in kubernetes um but you know the the, the pull request reached a hundred thousand a couple months ago but anyway i'm just saying like now as all open source projects you know it has its own evolution like you said let a thousand flowers well, that's a nice expression anyway sorry <laughs> continue
1: yeah no no, no. I, I think um you know again you know no, I, and that that expression in my opinion is very much a a Google approach for building products, um, which is, you know, experiment. It's okay to even, you know, have two different iterations on solving the same problem, right? And and letting kind of the the users or you know the market kind of determine uh, the ultimate answer. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, not that they were intentionally looking to like neglect anything. I think it was, you know, build the kind of raw tools to be, you know, like built on top of. And again, from our perspective, we do see just more and more teams doing interesting things, whether it's in cluster or out of cluster. Um, I think we're skewed to a certain degree because the problem set that we're looking at, it's so important to have this like unified view of all of your clusters and then have like metrics stored in a way to where you can see that unified set really easily that we see like a Thanos or a Cortex that would have kind of external storage typically on, you know, block storage, like, you know, an S3, for example.
0: Okay, good, good, good. I have one final question before we get to the very end, and this is the most serious question. Um, Webb, has anyone ever told you that your accent slightly resembles Matthew McConaughey's? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, that has been uh mentioned to me once or twice um i actually i grew up in south carolina uh, i've been in san francisco for gosh going on 10 years it sounds like i have not uh lost the accent just yet
0: that's great i think it's amazing uh anyway i don't think i'm that original for discovery Day. I imagine somebody else had probably mentioned that before uh anyway one last thing can you stop sharing your screen so we can share ours absolutely um, because as our, as our little final roundup, we always, we always got to mention, oh, and you didn't even mention, what roles are you hiring for?
1: Yes, great question. Um, we are largely hiring across the board. So we actually just uh, raised uh, a round of funding from the team at uh, First Round, who's amazing. So hiring engineers, uh, solutions engineers, support engineers, really focus on growing the engineering team. Uh, but we're also kind of building up our first like you know go to market effort where we're hiring like account executives et cetera. Um, so really uh, across the board, uh, growing the team. We're twelve today. We expect to be you know double that plus uh, pretty soon.
0: All right, that's exciting stuff. And if people want to find out about that, go to the web page, social media. Where do they find? Yeah. yeah
1: so coopcost.com, like, you know, on the, about us, we'll have a link to like open roles. Um, and then I'd love to share them with you, Bart. And you can also reach out to directly to me if you're interested in learning more.
0: Good, good, good. All right, well, as uh, tradition, I'm gonna stand up again because it's fun to stand up. I've never done this before in the beat-up. Uh, we, we always have uh, someone who's lurking in the background, who's Angel, who's our graphic recorder. And so he's been creating a visual representation of all the things you've been talking about. So Gorka, if we can share our screen to take a look at what Angel has created. Let's see, there we go. We have all the different elements, but well, not all of them. There was a lot of stuff that was mentioned, um, but quite a few different things that were, were being depicted there. Um, like I said, I think it was very, very complete, really liked the demo. We had some great questions from the audience, touched on a lot of the different things. I think there's more than enough that we can have a second or third or fourth conversation about this. Uh, we were talking before we got started, maybe getting your CTO on. Um, I think there's a lot to be said as well too, that I would like to take further about hybrid cloud, multi-cloud, uh, the different sorts of things that are coming up with that. And also, you know, for for folks out there that might be a little bit, you know, thinking just about price tags or or cost issues, how can they be more comfortable when moving into this Kubernetes space um, so that it's not so overwhelming, you know, and not, like you said, focusing on those horror stories of, oh, I heard so-and-so burned a ton of money. So that's why we're sticking to, you know, a monolith legacy, (laughs) keep things as they've been up until now. And, you know, if it ain't broke down, uh, don't fix it. So anyway... Webb, thank you very, very much. That was an action-packed hour. Um, we will have the recording of this up soon in case somebody arrived here late. Uh, for everything else, jump in our Slack. We'll be sharing those uh, those job adverts. If you have any other questions that you'd like to ask Web, he's very accessible, reachable, easy to interact with. Um, anyway, Webb, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much. Love the graphic there. Love being here. Thank, thank you so much for having me, Bart.
0: Our pleasure. Take it easy, man. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers.